So did you hear about the man who was stranded all alone on the desert island? When he was finally rescued after many years, he was showing his rescuers around the island. And they noticed three buildings on the island, and, and one of the buildings was clearly the hut, the home of this man. But the rescuers pointed to a second building, and they said, well, what's that? And the man replied, oh, that's where I go to church. Well, then the rescuers pointed to the third building that looked an awful lot like the second building, and they asked, well, what's that? And the man gave them that kind of bless-your-heart look that you give to someone when they don't quite understand, and he said, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> Seems that peace is difficult to find, even all alone on a desert island. I found this rather shocking statistic from an article in the New York Times from July 6th of 2003. Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. Can you imagine? Only for 8% of recorded time has there been complete peace in the world. What does that mean? That 92% of the time, there's war. And war is defined as an act of conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. Ours is a warring world. We can bring the scale down from the world to, to cities and, and realize that, that so many cities experience conflict instead of peace. There's racial conflict. There's socioeconomic conflict. We can bring the scale down to neighborhoods. Some neighborhoods never experience peace. We can bring the scale down to neighbors. Neighbors live in conflict with each other. Just Google neighbors killing neighbors and read some of the stories. I did. We can bring the scale down further to the home. Too often, the home is a place not of peace. Too often, homes are a place of conflict. And sometimes, sadly, even violence. Finally, we can bring the scale down to the individual. Inner turmoil, inner conflict often marks the lives of too many people. Our desert island friend reminds us that the church, the place where peace should reign is too often a place of conflict among its members. The Lord has told us how to make the world, on whatever scale, a different kind of place. And he's equipped us to make it that. Will we open our ears to listen to how he says we should do it? Will, be, will we be brave enough and engaged enough with the gospel through the power of the Spirit to be people who bring peace? Because as believers in Christ, you and I must be peacemakers. Let's hear Jesus tell us that. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And when you found your place in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word 
of the living God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for how you've taught us as we've worked our way through these Beatitudes one by one. Lord, another is before us this morning. And as always, we need your help to understand what you're saying to us, understand what you're calling us to. We need your Spirit to transform us, to enable us to be the people you've called us to be and do the things you've called us to do. And so that's our prayer this morning, that you would do that in us and through us through the power of your Spirit as it joins your Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So let's talk about conflict this morning. First, what is the cause of conflict? And then secondly, what is the cure for it? Jesus says here in this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, it's difficult to do a word study of peacemakers because this word, peacemaker, is rarely used in secular Greek of Jesus' day. So what can we infer from that little fact? That peacemaking was not highly valued. The peacemaking was not considered a viable means to any end, so it was not much written about. Whatever the implications of that fact might be, for sure it means that this word, peacemaker, was not in common use in the lives of people gathered on the mountain who were listening to Jesus speak this beatitude. They weren't reading this word often. They weren't hearing this word often. They weren't seeing it up on on a billboard. Need a peacemaker? Call 1-800-888-888. They didn't see that. Everyone listening to Jesus was part of the Roman Empire, which was famous for the hardness and the harshness and the brutality of its army. Therefore, Romans didn't have to make peace. The Jews They were listening to Jesus, were keenly aware that the mountain that they were sitting on, listening to Jesus, no longer belonged to them. It now belonged to the Romans. They were an occupied country. We know the apostles and the other followers of Jesus, at this point, they were looking for a Messiah who would establish a physical and political kingdom. They were looking for a Messiah who would restore the glory of ancient Israel. In fact, Jesus chose Simon, not Simon Peter, but a different Simon, to be one of the 12 apostles. Now this Simon is called in Scripture, Simon the Zealot. 
According to Josephus, zealots were a group of people who hated all foreigners, especially the Romans. And so they resorted to violence and assassination to rid themselves of these foreigners and to drive them out of the country. The zealots were people of the sword. Zealots were people of violence. They did not want to make peace. They did not want to live at peace with the Romans. Jerusalem for the Jews. That would have been the battle cry of the zealots. You know, it usually is part of the warm fuzzies that we have at Christmas to gather the children around the Christmas tree in the living room or sit in a a sanctuary lit only by candlelight, and here read the Christmas story from the King James Version with a lilting voice. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed, with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. That's how we like to read the story, isn't it? Well, maybe not. (laughs) But if you were a Jew, forced to make one of those long, expensive, inconvenient, intrusive trips, if you are required to pay those oppressive taxes to the Romans, you might read that story a little differently, especially the word taxed. And the last feelings you would have as you read about this reality would be the warm fuzzies. And so the zealots bitterly opposed these taxes, and they sought by violence to bring about the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. We get a little bit of this history in Acts chapter 5 from a man named Gamaliel. He was a respected teacher of the law. And he reminded people of this. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be a somebody, i.e. a Messiah. And about 400 men rallied to him. And he was killed and all his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, the one we just read about. And he led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. And so there were at least two failed attempts to revolt against the Romans. And now here's Jesus, and he's a pretty front-running candidate in the minds of these people to be the Messiah. Would the third time be a charm? Now, I mention all this history, not to bore you. Wake up, it's over. But to help us understand the conflict and the struggle and the turmoil and even the violence that marked the lives of the people who are following Jesus and who are listening to this Sermon on the Mount. It's the atmosphere of their world as they experience it. And they may be following Jesus and listening to him because they have hopes that he'll be the Messiah, the one who will overthrow the Romans. So so think about Simon for a minute. Even after he becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's still 
called Simon the Zealot. What kind of guy must he have been? What must his personality have been like? What must his reputation have been if Zealot was forever linked to his name? If Simon is following Jesus because he believes Jesus is the Messiah, what was this moment like for Simon? What was his reaction to Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers? Had he been waiting for Jesus to say, draw your swords? Was he disappointed that this political Messiah, this potential Messiah, was calling for those who follow him to be people of peace? Did he want to interrupt Jesus and say, no, no, Jesus, peacemaking is not the way for the Messiah? Did he consider dropping out of Jesus' band of followers and returning at this point to the zealots? I have no idea. Can't answer any of those questions. But we do know that the Sermon on the Mount comes very, very early in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, in many ways, it sets the agenda for Jesus' ministry and the kind of kingdom that he'd come to establish and the kind of people that he was calling to follow him. And so if the hearts of the disciples are changing and being transformed, and it's very early in that process. And the fact that even after the resurrection, after the resurrection, three years later, and just before his ascension, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's very telling about the slowness of the transformation that was coming to the hearts of the disciples. The apostles still want what they want. And I wonder if their emphasis was on the word this. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? Lord, last time, before you died, you didn't restore the kingdom. Will you at this time? They were slow. The apostles were slow to give up what they wanted in favor of what Jesus wanted. And so now we have gotten to the core and the cause of conflict. Many commentators see the letter written by James as closely related to the Sermon on the Mount. So if you'll turn to the book of James, chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1012. It's near the end of the New Testament. Page 1012 in the Pew Bible, James chapter 3. Listen to this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable. Notice that order. Like the Beatitudes, pure in heart, peacemaker, pure and peaceable. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See, the, the reason for the lack of peace could not be more clear. It results when people, and let's just be direct. Can we just be direct? It results when you and I don't get what we want. We have a passionate desire for something. We desire things. We covet what other people have, want it for ourselves. Sometimes we're passionate about ideas. Sometimes we're passionate about the way things ought to be done. And when we don't get what we're passionate about, whatever it is, we fight and we quarrel. And until we're honest about that, we won't have much peace in our own lives. And we certainly won't be able to bring much peace to others. So every time conflict comes into our lives on whatever scale, we have to put that conflict through this grid. Is this conflict because I am not getting what I want? Is this conflict because I am unwilling to give up something I want? Is what I want what Jesus wants? That's what we've got to do. As a zealot, Simon was dedicated to exclusive nationalism, Jerusalem for the Jews. He was convinced violence was the way to accomplish it. As long as he held on to those views, he would have no peace because it's not Jesus' way. Jesus is not nationally exclusive. Jesus is an every tribe, tongue, and nation kind of guy. Is that good news? His love and his salvation is for all kinds of people from all over the world. But Jesus will not win that salvation through the sword. In fact, when Peter drew his sword on the night they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Simon, the zealot, witnessed what Peter did. He heard the words Jesus said. Peter's way of dealing with the situation was instinctual. It came from a deep love for Jesus and a desire to protect him. And so in as much as that's true, Jesus, uh, Peter's action was justifiable. I did it for you, Lord. But it wasn't Jesus' way. So if Simon the Zealot, an apostle of Jesus, will ever find peace and then make peace between others, he must give up his ways, his ideas, his opinions in favor of those of Jesus. The cause of conflict is refusing to give up what we want or what we think. And so we square off with another person. And each person goes to their own corner and the conflict is on. Husband, wife, neighbor against neighbor, church member against church member, 
denomination against denomination, nation against nation. Doesn't matter how large or small the scale, conflict comes, quarreling comes when we do not get what we want. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher and theologian in England in the mid-20th century. And this is what he writes about this beatitude. The peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. Now is not that the whole trouble with us by nature? We look at everything as it affects us. What's the reaction upon me? What is this going to mean to me? And the moment we think like that, there is of necessity war because everybody else is doing the same thing. Everybody is wondering, what's in it for me? What does it mean for me? And so the key to making peace is subordinating what we want to what the Lord wants. The challenge for us is that too often we can't see how obeying Jesus will accomplish what we want or what we think is best. Just as I'm sure Simon the Zealot could not see how making peace would accomplish what was best for Israel. Simon the Zealot could say, peace is all well and good, Jesus. But in this case, in this case, it won't free us from the Romans. But the moment you and I say, but Lord, but Lord, oh, but Lord, you don't understand. But Lord, this case is an exception. Whenever we say that, we are on our way to conflict and not peace. We all think we're different. We all think we're special. Raise your hand if you think you're special. Come on, we all think we are special. We think our situation is unique. If only the Lord understood. He does understand. The Lord does understand. And He will always call you and me to look at conflict square in the eye. And he'll always require us to own up to our own self-centeredness and our desire to have our desires. And then he will call us to faith. And then he'll call us to trust. And so the choice is yours and mine, your way or the Lord's way. Until we settle that issue, we will not have peace. So that's the, the cause of conflict. Not getting our way. What's the cure? Well, I feel like I've been going a long time. Have I been going a long time? We're more than halfway over. Is that good? What's the cure? The cure is that you and I must be proactive. You and I must be intentional. Please notice that Jesus does not say here, blessed are the peacekeepers. Jesus promises blessing on those who make peace. Now there's a vast difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers. There's a difference in how they think and how they act. A peacekeeper could be one who is willing to say anything, willing to do anything just to keep peace. The peacekeeper could let go of conviction and follow the path of least resistance just to keep peace. But remember this, The same Jesus who says, blessed are the peacemakers, is also the one who said, I have come not to bring peace, 
but to bring a sword. What's up with that? Jesus isn't talking about a physical sword. That's not his point at all. He means simply this, that he, Jesus Christ, is the watershed issue for all of human history. Jesus Christ is the watershed issue for all of human history. What you believe about the person of Jesus Christ may bring you into conflict with people, especially in a culture like ours, who do not embrace Christ by faith and who do not value or honor what Jesus values. And so conflict will come. A peacekeeper could say anything to keep the peace. That's not what we're called to. A peacekeeper could deny any, any belief to keep the peace. That's not what we're called to. We're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. And so I think it's an appropriate time for a quote from John Calvin. And all the Presbyterians said, all right, John Calvin. By peacemakers, Jesus means those who not only seek peace, and avoid quarrels as far as lies in their power, but who also labor to settle differences among others, who advise all men to live at peace and take away every occasion of hatred and strife. There are good grounds for this statement, as it is a laborious and irksome employment to promote uh, employment to reconcile those who are at variance, persons of a mild disposition who study to promote peace are compelled to endure the indignity of hearing reproaches, complaints, and remonstrances on all sides. That's what Calvin thinks of this job of keeping peace. It's laborious. It's irksome. It may cost you something to bring peace between you and someone else. Reproaches and complaints and indignities may come your way. Charles Quarles. That's not a statement like Charles Quarles. That's, that's a name. Don't y'all think that's funny? Because I'm going to quote him, and his last name is Quarles, and he's talking about peace. If I'm pronouncing it right, Q-U-A-R-E-L-S... Anyway, my apologies if you ever listen to this, Charles Quarles. Quarles? <laughs> All right. This is what he writes in his new commentary. The ministry of peacemaking involves putting an end to conflict by refusing to postpone apologies or restitution, refusing to seek revenge, humbly serving one's enemies, and having a love for others that is stronger than their hatred. Wow. Making peace will cost us something, won't it? But you see that the peacemaker is not passive. The peacemaker is active and aggressive. The peacemaker rolls up his sleeves or her sleeves and enters into the fray. And that means the peacemaker may pay a price. But if you pay a price... For seeking to make peace through Jesus, you're only doing what Jesus, our Savior, did. He paid the price so that there would be peace between us and God. Is that good news? The cross of Jesus is an instrument of reconciliation. 
It's an instrument of peace. By his death on the cross, Jesus reconciled us to God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has made the perfect way for there to be peace between warring parties, between us and God. So first and foremost, being a peacemaker makes all of us evangelists. Ones who know that the cure for the greatest conflict is the gospel. Scripture is clear. We are enemies of God. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, there it is, enemies, we were enemies of God. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Enemies of God in and of ourselves. We didn't want what God wanted in and of ourselves. We weren't reconciled to his thoughts and to his ways. And that's why the word peacemaker is so rarely used or found in ancient Greek. It's the reason why only 8% of recorded history has been marked by peace. We don't want what God wants. We don't value what God values. He is a God of peace. He's a God who sent angels to proclaim peace on earth. It's why he named his son, what? The Prince of Peace. Because through Christ, God seeks to reconcile all things to himself. He wants the rebellion that's caused by sin to cease so that peace can reign. If you and I will be peacemakers, we've got to be people of this truth. You're an enemy of God. You're opposed to his right and good ways, but through faith in Jesus, he forgives your rebellion. Is that good news? Through faith in Christ, you can change from an enemy of God to a friend of God, and you will know true peace. Is that good news? Only through faith. And that's the truth that you and I have to tell people. It's our commission here in this beatitude. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. Is that good news? Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We've been talking for over a year about people of peace. Those people that are in our lives who are not yet believers in Christ. People who know that we're believers and for some odd reason they like us anyway. And they want us to be in their lives anyway. These people of peace need to find peace with God. You can help them make that peace. 
Not only for them, but for others. And so the vital question is this. If you do not make peace, if you are not a peacemaker, can you be a son or daughter of God? Can you and I opt out of this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers? The reason we should retain the original Greek sons here instead of the more gender-neutral children is this. It's very specific because the people to whom Jesus spoke on this day, for them the word son of carried the meaning partaker of the character. If you're a son of somebody, that means you share their character. So if you call somebody son of a dog, you're not insulting, you're insulting their character. You're acting like a dog. If you have really found peace with God through Christ, if you really understand that that means that rebellion against God, your rebellion has been forgiven, if you understand that God sees you now as a friend and not as an enemy, how could you not want peace for others? How could you hold on to and even nurture conflict with someone else? How could you not forgive as Christ forgave you? How could you not encourage others to make peace? If you are truly a son or a daughter of God, you will be like your father. I will be like my father and we will be peacemakers. What a blessing to be the instrument used by God to bring warring people together, to help heal And restore and reconcile broken relationships. To see families brought back together. To see friends brought back together. What a blessing to be the person. Or the kind of person who so gets the gospel. Who in meekness and poverty of spirit so understands the magnitude of what you've been forgiven. That you can forgive others. Be a peacemaker. Be willing to change the statistics. To up that low percentage. To help this world, your city, your neighborhood, your neighbor, your family, your church friend. Find peace in Christ. Christ is the only cure for conflict. We will only have lasting peace. We will only make lasting peace through Christ. That's it. Everything else will fail. Everything else will fall short. Everything else will be sinking sand. Only when we proactively choose to live by faith in Christ. Only when we proactively proclaim Christ in the midst of conflict will peace be found. Let's pray. Father, we want to reflect your character. Thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that you call us sons and daughters. That comes with an obligation on our lives, Lord. And that is to reflect the character of the one that we so thankfully call Father. Lord, you are are a God of peace throughout Scripture from start to finish. That's how you reveal yourself to us. The God who seeks peace. The peace that was destroyed in the garden when sin entered the world for the first time. Ever since, Lord, it's been your mission to restore peace between yourself and sinful, rebellious people. So, Father, I pray that we would reflect your character and that we would long to be people who make peace. 
Lord, we can't have peace in our lives. We can't make it with others. If we trust in or stand on or rely on anyone else but you, Lord, you have to be our solid rock. Unchangingly so. And from that awesome relationship, Lord, we can make peace with others. Pray, Lord, that you will do this for your glory. We know it's the desire of your heart. We know you've made provision for it. We know that you've empowered us to do it. So, Lord, inspire us now to go out and be your ambassadors so that our feet may be called beautiful because we bring the good news of peace through faith in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.